doing something generous or giving something because of obligation or expected remuneration or anything else is simply an event and not a mindset. And so radical generosity, what that means is, is doing something that's just, or thinking in a way that most people wouldn't think. The people who are being radically generous are the people who are going above and beyond and doing things that everyone else is not doing to be generous. And that's why I think radical generosity is so powerful because it gets people to think immediately and step out of their comfort zone. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Bob DePasquale, welcome to Bridging the Gap, my friend. How are you all in near Fort Lauderdale? What's going on, buddy? Yeah, I'm doing awesome, Matt. It's a great day here in South Florida. It's probably 80-something degrees, not too humid anymore. Summer's over. We're into fall, so why not sit inside and do a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) We should have done this in person, like live outside. I mean, it is just such perfect weather down in Florida right now. So that's a complete miss on our part here. We should have kind of (laughs) brought the equipment down and and had you know a cocktail outside and uh, enjoyed itself. So, yeah. uh, well, dude, I am stoked about this conversation, man. I think that the fact and the psychology around giving is such an interesting aspect, and especially in this world of wealth management today, where we're trying to figure out what is our unique value and how do we continue to move up kind of the fulfillment pyramid to deliver more for clients. I think that this conversation is like right down that alley. But before we get there. I always like to kind of talk about the journey and I, I always start the journey conversation off of, you know, what did the the 13-year-old Bob DePasquale want to do? Was this kind of having a podcast with Matt Reiner on Bridging the Gap in that plan? Yeah, that was the first thing I thought of uh, <laughs> when I got to middle school. No, uh, my if I wasn't going to be playing sports professionally when I was growing up, I think a lot of kids probably felt this way. I was going to be talking about it. So you know, the fact that we have podcasts now enables you to do that sort of thing. So I'm kind of living my dream. I'm talking about something in the media, but <laughs> not sports these days. Although I could, man, I, I love, and I've learned so many lessons over the years of my life from playing, from playing ball. So it really, it really had an effect on me. What was the, what was the sport of interest growing up and in sport of interest these days? Uh, American football. And I say American because, you know, you probably got listeners all over the place. That, that was my sport. I mean, I played others. I played baseball, ran track, basketball. I did those things. But college, football, lacrosse were the thing. And, and I still love watching ball, um, especially this time of year. It's football season, man. So can't go wrong with it. I love that, man. I love that. Big fan of, of American football as well. We do have to. We're global, right? So we have to kind of talk about that. So, yeah, and, and we're aligned on that kind of youth passion, right? If I wasn't playing sports, I was like, I want to be like the next Stuart Scott. Like, I, that's what I wanted to do, you know, or, or, you know, Rich Eisen or one of those guys watching Sports Center on repeat. And uh, I'm not talking sports, but we are talking on a podcast, which you're, you're so right on. Yeah, you as know, cool as me- the other side of the pillow. As cool as the other side of the pillow. I mean, a line that's just greatest lines. Unbelievable, his lines that he had, and him and what's his name, the the kind of the random guy. I forget his name that always did the random stuff. Kenny Mayne. What a what an interesting person. Anyhow, we're not going to go down that avenue. We're not here to talk about that. We could though. But talk to me about the journey from thirteen to now, where you are. Walk us through kind of what got you to where you are today to be the chief generosity guy and the founder of Initiate Impact and mm-hmm. kind of walk us through from 13 till today. Yeah, I love how we're starting at 13 because honestly, the first 12 years of my life are pretty boring. So we can skip all <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, 13, you know, like I said, grew up playing sports, moved to Florida when I was when I was only three 
And so I really feel like I, I'm a Floridian at heart, even though I, I was born in New York. And those next five years of my life were terrific. I mean, loving parents, only child, spoiled, rotten brat, playing ball, going to school, making friends, had a great life. 18 hit and I went off to college to play ball. And in a very, very short period of time, my life was turned upside down. And I actually almost lost my life at 18. And so that really, really shaped a lot of my uh, my understanding of the world at such a young age. And so, and since then, for the past 22 years now, things have been much different, focused on generosity. Not, you know, some people, people might say, are you an expert in generosity? I say, you know, not at all. Um, I'm just someone who tries to display it. And it's taken decades for me to figure out how to do it my best. And I think it, for everyone, it's a journey. And so I'd be happy to dive into the story at 18, but really it wasn't until then that I really started focusing myself on being a more generous person. Yeah, I, I would like to j- dive into that. I know that that kind of was a journey. So let's dive into to kind of what, what happened at 18 that really kind of flipped the switch of, of laying the foundation for who you are today and, and, and getting to this point. Absolutely. So well, let me ask you a question first. So did you have this feeling of invincibility when you're 18? I, I yes. Yes. yes, I mean, very I, much so. Some people say no, but most people tell me yes. So you can probably relate to this. I was 18 going off to college thought I was, you know, God's gift to the world. Uh, I could play football. I was going back to New York to spend time with my family that I really didn't know that well since I moved to Florida when I was so young. I was going to get an education. I'm sure my parents were hoping that was higher on the list, but it was somewhere. So give me some credit. (laughs) And I was in training camp playing football and I thought I pulled a groin muscle. Now, I'm not going to ask you too many questions on this, but this is another question. Have you ever pulled a groin muscle before? Not that I can recall. Not yeah, that I can well, recall. Don't ever do it. <laughs> it's one of the most painful, debilitating injuries. I mean, you can't sit, walk, stand, twist around. I mean, just you don't realize how much you use the muscles in your groin. You know, you, you think that they're just kind of there. But uh, I pulled a groin muscle, and I would do this rehab exercise. Now, a, a college training room is much bigger and more extravagant than a high school training room, right? So if you ever like, tw- you know twisted an ankle in high school, you know, some student trainer slaps some ice on it or something and you get back out there. But in college, I would do all that. We do these exercises as doctors and trainers. So the exercise I was doing to rehab my pulled groin muscle, and I think it was just to strengthen the muscles kind of in my hips in that area, but I would sit on this three-wheeled stool and shimmy across the training room. I looked like such an idiot in front of all my new coaches and, you know, friends and, and the trainers. But that's what I did. I was doing it for like 10 days. I wasn't getting any better. I'm like, listen, I need to prove myself to my coach. I got to get back out on the field. So one day my trainer, the head trainer, his name is Rick, nicest guy in the world. Oh, I really owe much of my life to him now. But at the time I was so upset with him. He stood on the bo- like on a box in the middle of the training room. And this is what he had to do because he was a really, really tiny guy to get everyone's attention. It was so loud there on a given training camp morning at like 5.30, 6 o'clock a.m. He stands on the box and he cups his hands and he screams at me, Bobby, quit being a weakling. You got to get back out on the field. Now, when the head trainer calls you out and calls you a weakling, I felt like such a loser. And I was really upset with him. And I went to talk to him later that day or, you know, maybe a half hour later when I was done rehabbing and practice was supposed to start. I said, Rick, listen, man, first of all, I don't appreciate you calling me out. And I'm like looking down at the guy, right? You know, because he's like five foot six. <laughs> and he's, um, I'm like, Rick, that's the problem with it. And he goes, 
no, 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 you really need to get back out on the field. This is not getting any better. And I said, exactly, it's not getting any better. That's your job to help me <laughs> get better. So anyway, he sent me to a doctor. Now, the series of the next week or so, now remember, I'm 18, so I'm technically an adult, but I'm going to all these doctor's appointments all around Long Island and New York and driving around, and these appointments would take hours. I would walk in, they're asking me all these medical hist history questions and then medical insurance, all this stuff is way over my head at the age of 18, but I'm technically an adult. And I had ultrasounds, CAT scans, sonograms, MRIs. I had every test in the book. I mean, the radiology departments of Long Island knew me, you know, like I was the number one customer. I remember having one final test. I'm thinking I'm finally going to get an answer. Maybe I need surgery. I, I get something's wrong with my groin muscle. I go into this doctor's appointment expecting to be there for like four hours, like all day long, like typically I would, because when you get these tests, you have to go through all this preparation and different things to get ready just to have the test, no less actually have it itself. And so I, I walk in and 30 seconds later, I expected to be filling out paperwork for a half hour. I mean, Bob called me right back. I go right into the office. I sit down. Less than a minute later, the doctor walks in and he looks me right in the eye and says, Bobby, you have cancer. And I, my jaw, like hit the desk, Matt. I, I know, I mean, I was totally blown away, not expecting this whatsoever. And I, and he goes, don't worry, don't panic. We'll hook you up with an oncologist. You're free to go. And I said, why? Well, I didn't say anything. I thought to myself, like, I don't even know what an oncologist is. So like, I didn't even know what to think. And I remember getting up and walking out of the building now, my parents were flying up that day. My, the first game I was supposed to play in if I wasn't injured was two days later on a Saturday. Now, we knew I wasn't playing in the game at this point, but they were still coming up to see the family and to see me. They expected me to be in this appointment all morning. As soon as I got out of the building, I mean, it was like, Matt, like divine timing. I cannot explain it. The moment I walked out of the building, my phone rings. And it was my mom. She goes, hey, I wasn't expecting you to answer. I was going to leave a voicemail to let you know that we landed and we're on our way to your uncle's house. That's where they were going to be staying. And I was going to meet them. And she goes, but while I have you, how'd the appointment go? And I said, uh, hey, mom, about that appointment. And I had to tell her what, what happened or what he said. And I, I can't explain to you, Matt, it was dead silent, but she was like, I could hear my mom like screaming in her mind all at the same time. And the only thing I remember hearing when I said it was my dad on the other end. He was also in the car with her. And I knew he could tell something was wrong too. Cause he was like, Susan, that's my mom's name. Susan, Susan, what's wrong. And so we were just blown away. I met myself, my, my parents back at my uncle's house and I hadn't seen them. Remember I'm like a, like I said, only child mama's boy from South Florida. Hadn't seen my parents in like five, six weeks. I mean, never been away from home that long. And we, we said some prayers, we, we hugged each other, we shed a few tears and kind of looked at each other like, what's going on? Like, I'm this invincible 18-year-old and now all of a sudden I had this, you know, potentially terminal illness. So my doctor told me to not drop out of my classes. So I planned on starting college the next week and not going home to get treated. A couple of days go by, it's now Saturday, the day for my first game or what was going to be the first game. I, I didn't travel with the team. And my uncle's best friend comes over his house. And this is a key part of the story because we didn't know this guy. His name was Tim. Never met him before because we were living in Florida. And he 
comes over the house. He walks in the door. He says hi to my aunt and uncle and walks directly over to my parents. I mean, like a beeline straight to my parents. Doesn't know them from Adam. And he reaches into his pocket, pulls out his keys. And like, I mean, it seemed like he was shoving them in their face. I mean, he reached over to them and says, Bob and Susan, here you go. Take my keys. You can have my car for as long as you need it. I can't imagine what you're going through with your son right now. And they they didn't know what to say. And I was thinking to myself, wow, that's the most generous thing that someone's ever done for me and my family. And so we were basically silent, didn't know how to thank the guy. And he said goodbye to my aunt and uncle and just left, like was there for maybe 15 minutes and was gone. And we're like, who is this guy? And my, my uncle was like, well, that's Tim. He's a pretty generous guy. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I see that. So that was critical because that was an incredible act of what I would call radical generosity from Tim. Like who would ever expect someone to just give you their car? So a few days go by. It's now Tuesday morning. It's my second ever college class. Like I said, my oncologist told me to, to go to class. So I came out of my second ever college class on a Tuesday morning and I went to the cafeteria. And I'll never forget this. I was eating a breakfast burrito in a college cafeteria and I'm watching the news. You remember those like old school tube type of televisions? Yep, yep. That might hang from a bracket. So it's, it's hanging from a bracket like on the corner of the ceiling and the wall in a public cafeteria. So it's not big and I don't know any TV stations and I don't watch the news. I mean, I'm 18 years old in a strange place and I'm just watching the news, eating the breakfast burrito, getting ready to hop in the car and, and go to another doctor's appointment. And all of a sudden, the news is on and a plane crashes into a skyscraper. And I was like, wow, it's a horrible accident. Like, that's that's terrible. So I called my dad, who was back at my uncle's. I said, hey, you watching the news? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw this the, the plane crash. He's like, yeah, that's that's terrible. And we're talking for maybe you know less than a minute. And all of a sudden, bam, another plane comes right around and hits the other tower that's right next to the one that just got hit. And we realized, well, we didn't know at the time, but that was the September 11 terrorist attacks happening live, like right there. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. But I was like, you better hop in the car and get back to your uncle's now. So I hightailed it out of that cafeteria. That breakfast burrito is probably still sitting on the counter there. And I hopped in the car and the drive from my school to my uncle's house was typically 15 minutes. I'd be there in no time. But Matt, it took me nine hours to drive from school to my uncle's house. And now I'm in New York. So like in the very, very distance is burning towers. People are panicking. Things are going nuts. Later in the story, I end up getting a master's degree in broadcast journalism, working in AM radio, sports radio for a very short period of time before getting recruited into finance. But I will never, ever listen to nine straight hours of AM radio again. <laughs> But I listened to the whole thing and watched it in the distance while I was driving. I ran out of gas in my uncle's neighborhood. Now, thank God I didn't run out of gas on the highway, but I still ran out of gas. We pushed my car into my uncle's driveway. And we, I got out of the car. My parents were there. We looked at each other and we're like, what's going on? Like a few weeks ago, I was the invincible 18-year-old going to live his dream. Now we're questioning if I'm going to be alive. And in addition... Now we don't know if the world's going to coming to an end. And it was just the most chaotic, crazy four or five days of my life. And I know this is a long story, but every element I think about all the time in my life. And so 
my uncle was on business the night before. Now, we didn't know this, but we thought he could have potentially been on one of those planes because he was supposed to fly back to New York that morning. Finally, at like maybe 8 o'clock p.m., I don't remember exactly, my aunt answers the phone and it's my uncle. And she's like, oh, thank God you're okay. We thought you were maybe in one of those planes. He goes, no, I'm stuck in Denver. I wasn't on one of the planes. Everything's fine. And we were all relieved. And like, it's finally some good news throughout that day and those past couple of days of our lives. But before my uncle hang up, he said, hey, I, I know you're, you're glad that I'm here. But unfortunately, my friend Tim, who you all met a couple of days back, he was in the towers this morning and he died. Oh, my God. And we were like, this guy doesn't deserve to die. Like he was an extremely generous, great family man. What a, what a guy. Well, it turns out that Tim worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, who if you're in the financial industry and you're listening, you probably are familiar with the firm Cantor Fitzgerald. And they lost everyone that morning in the towers, except for their CEO, who was uncharacteristically not in the office that early, Howard Lutnick. Go watch the YouTube video of his press conference after 9-11. And it's one of the most emotional things you'll ever see. He was taking his kid to school or something silly that morning and just happened to not be there and was on the street running away from the, the collapsing tower. And I tell you that because Kenneth Fitzgerald's also known for their generosity in Howard because they would donate office space to my uncle's foundation, which was for cystic fibrosis, a disease my cousin has. So they would get free office space from Kenneth Fitzgerald and the only employee for the foundation that would typically be in the office that morning was Tammy. And she was also uncharacteristically late, got caught in the subway underneath the towers and somehow survived. Now, I tell you that because I, for the life of me, and I'll always think about this, and there really is no explanation, Matt, but for some reason, Tammy, who was a great person, she survived. But Tim, who was known for being extra generous, didn't. And it turns out that Tim had this mindset or thought process that's kind of similar to YOLO or FOMO. You know, you've heard those acronyms of the day, you only live once or fear of missing out. But Tim had his own twist on it. It was, you never know when the last opportunity you'll have to be generous to someone will be. And it mm -hmm. turns out that my family was the, his last opportunity to be generous. And he mm -hmm. capitalized on it. And so that period of time in my life when I was 18, Matt, really shaped my worldview on things. And it was terribly, terribly chaotic. But I've made it through since then. And there's a lot of other things that have happened. But I always think about that day because it showed me that we really owe it to other people. We never know when our last chance is to give something. That is a, uh, you know, it's a remarkable and gut wrench. I mean, all of it, all the emotions through it. And I'm glad to know that you're you're better and and you're, and you're kind of living Tim's legacy on with this firm and, and the research and the study and the yep. kind of the focus you have on the psychology of giving. I, I'm curious, we all we all think about, you know, giving like the, the, the emotional impact or the feeling that you have when you give something to someone else is really like it's like this, like it's kind of like a dopamine hit, but it's just like this like euphoria feeling of doing good. I'm curious from your perspective and what you've learned from that point to now with your firm and, and the work you've done, what is it about this? What is behind generosity? Like from a psychological standpoint, why does generosity make you feel 
better? Like, what is it about that as opposed to receiving? And I'm sure that giving feels so much better than receiving. What, what's the research behind that, that that you found to be so effective? I love talking about this. I have a friend who has been on my podcast before by the name of Wendy Steele. And I bring her up a lot. If you've ever heard me talk on a podcast before, you've probably heard me mention Wendy. We've only ever met on the internet. It's not like we're buddies or pals, like we hang out. But she's the leader of an organization called Impact 100 Global. They do tremendous work of getting women involved in philanthropy beyond just the financial aspect of it. I mean, there's a commitment financially, but it's also about helping people make wise decisions to improve society. And so there's there's chapters of this organization all over the place. But she has a TED Talk that's probably, oh man, it might be almost 15 years old now. But it's it's so on point, it still holds up, and it's really the answer to your question. So she talks about three different parties of a giving scenario, not just the giver and receiver, but also a third-party onlooker. And she goes into scientific detail in the TED Talk, which is a short thing, but if you want to hear her talk more about it, I'm sure she would, and she's got other resources. Uh, but you mentioned dopamine and hormones. Well, the key hormone in bonding in relationships is known as oxytocin. Many women, if you're listening, are probably familiar with this, especially if you've given birth to a child. The doctor will often talk about the oxytocin that's released during birth. That's why they say mother and child are usually so are bonded immediately out of the womb. Well, it's the same hormone that's excreted or one of the same hormones when there's some kind of giving or relationship involvement outside of just mother and child. And so you talk about it is great to receive a gift, isn't it? Like it feels good. You know, someone loves you. You also get a toy. I mean, when I was growing up, when I, that 13-year-old Bob that you mentioned earlier, man, did I love getting gifts from my parents, right? And so I was experiencing that oxytocin and made me feel close to my parents. And then my parents also felt really good, like you just talked about. In some cases, you might even say it feels better. Maybe there's more, this I don't know, but maybe you get more oxytocin from giving than you do from receiving. But I think that what, goes overlooked though sometimes, Matt, is the third party onlooker. So no direct involvement in the gift, but they see it, experienced it, watched it, saw it, maybe just heard a story about it. That person also receives that hit, if you will, of oxytocin. And so it's scientifically proven that giving is somewhat contagious. It's exponential. It makes more people feel good than just the people involved in the direct gift. So um, you mentioned our firm, and I didn't realize this actually until after my wealth management firm, Focus on Generosity, was started. I had all the anecdotal evidence from people asking me questions about it. We can talk more about how that how the firm came to be and why, but it wasn't until after that I did even deeper research and got the scientific proof that giving is a powerful force in our lives. So and when you think about it from a wealth management perspective, the, the gift of giving, right? I, I talk about the gift of going second, which is kind of giving them the space and the freedom to, to talk by basically sharing, being vulnerable initially, and then letting them speak in, in a safe space. How does the gift of generosity or this, you know, how does generosity play into a relationship in wealth management, right? In that sense of helping to provide that same environment with onlooker, receiver, and giver. How have you been able to incorporate that into working with clients? Yeah, so there's two main ways. Uh, number one, as you may expect, is the direct giving of resources from the customer or the client. We use the word partners. We want to partner with people in their mission. So we're pretty direct about nothing wrong with the word client, but just substituting the word partner. 
So if you, so if I say that, that's what I mean. But their direct gifts now, in many cases, financially, because we're working with their estate planning and their taxes and even giving while you're living, which is a powerful force too. But also in giving their time and their intellectual property and their other resources, we we will help people do that. So it's not just hey, this is how you give the gift and save the most taxes, you know, to, to give this gift. But this is also how you can participate more with the organization. Or here's another organization that's behind the same cause as the one you've already given to. You might want to try that. Or even in some cases, helping people book travel to go places to be able to live out their generosity. So that's number one. I mean, direct people giving their whatever resources they have. And there's nothing, I don't think there's anything better than that. But also the way that generosity kind of works or seems to help us, and this is not something that I necessarily planned. I plan it now, but it wasn't originally, is that it also helps our organization attract, I mean, the most loyal people. And in some cases, the most, the, the best, the top talent. So if we're looking for someone else to partner with or help, it's an incredible tool because people just want to be involved with that. Whether they know it's, I don't think anyone has said, you know, I really want to do business with Initiate Impact because they make me feel oxytocin. I mean, they don't say that, but that's really honestly what I believe that it is. It's all that scientific research is just manifesting itself in our business because people want to be involved with us. So we don't typically get questions or inquiries like, hey, you know, Bob and Stacy, my business partner, I heard you guys can get us 5% on our IRA. And if you can, man, I'll be set for life. I'll be financially free. That's not the phone call that we get. Typically, the phone call that we get is, hey, Bob and Stacey, I've had a lot of success, me and my family with our, you know, with our business, and we're really feeling called to support a cause and manage our, manage our resources better to do good in the world. And like that makes us light up, and that makes me tell me, man, this person's feeling that oxytocin. So I hope that answers your question, but those, two, those are really the two main reasons where it kind of fits into what we do. I think that that's really interesting because I think what I interpret you mentioning is like philanthropic planning and, and like finding your purpose and, and and giving all into that purpose. Because when you have that focus of what it is, what's your why and all that type of stuff, then you can give financially and give time resources to, to push that forward. Yeah. So h- how do you look at financial planning? Do you see the financial planning process as helping to identify causes? And then is it more of a philanthropic mentality of of a planning aspect? Or is it a, and or it could be both, like an experiential like happiness, and then they could be blended. But you know, some people think about financial planning to help them reach a goal, which tends to incur spending on experiences or material items. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I'm hearing you say is it's more of planning to help to give. And, and that's a different way of planning. I'm curious of like how that process goes in, in your mind. Yeah, it, it's definitely planning to help to give. But I think we're, we're shortchanging giving if we don't consider it experience on its own, as we've talked about. Mm, fair. So we're absolutely planning for people to experience the things that they want to experience in life. It just so happens that many of those happen to be in support of other people. And yeah. so when we're doing planning... It's very, very, it's a very, very similar conversation to what anyone else is planning about. The difference is, is yeah, sure, we have some specific technical expertise in that area. Like we're very, very well versed in the financial vehicles that can help you do that. We just have to be by nature. But it's not like that, honestly, is what, fi- like, I don't get super fired up about a charitable remainder trust. You know, that, that's not yeah. like my thing. 
What I get fired up about is the conversation with the people and helping them build out what they actually want to do, like what's the desire. And so that could be, you know, for, for many planners out there, that might be the person wants to retire and move to closer to their grandkids and enjoy free time with them or open a side business or something. For us, a lot of times it ends up being, I want to start a foundation or I want to start a nonprofit organization or I want to start volunteering my time more with an organization that's really meaningful. And really what it is, it's storytelling, Matt. It's mm. all about the storytelling. What we do is that we get our partners to tell their family legacy story. Simple as that. And once they start telling us, then we help them build it out. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like writing an autobiography. I mean, maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but they're really telling their story of what's most meaningful to them and then hopefully living it out. I'm making a note here because I love that idea of telling your family legacy. That's such an interesting way of understanding people as well. I mean, the the insight and the understanding of who they are, where they come from, what their values are. Like, if you have them tell what their legacy story is, it's kind of like write your eulogy type of idea, right? How do you mm -hmm. want people to remember you? Uh, I think that that's really interesting. You, know, you, you mentioned in a lot of your content about this idea of radical generosity. And I'm curious on the difference between generosity and radical generosity. And if they're the same, how to continue to push or the impact of radical generosity just on the industry as a whole. I'm curious on that. But is there a difference between the two? And if so, what is that? Yeah, 100%. There's a difference. They're absolutely related. I mean, they're still all encompassing under the umbrella of generosity. But one of the first things that I like to, to highlight here when I get questions similar to this is that gen I believe that generosity is a mindset and not an event. So this is a key foundation for the work that we do at Initiate Impact, the work I do speaking with organizations about how to build cultures of generosity. This is all important. It's a mindset. And what I mean by that is an event is, is a specific celebration or a result of something that's end. It, it ends. It's finite. And honestly, in many cases, it's fleeting. And so doing something generous or giving something by because of obligation or expected remuneration or anything else is simply an event and not a mindset. And so radical generosity, what that means is that's taking a mindset that other people would otherwise think is not natural. Now, the word radical sometimes I think has a bad connotation in our society. Like it means that you're doing ne something negative or you have malintent or you're, you're risking, it could be bad, you know, and that's just not true. If you look up radical in the dictionary, I mentioned about what Tim did for my family back when I was 18. No one or most people in the world would not say, hey, my best friend's nephew just got cancer. I'm going to go give his family my car. If you asked 100 people, how many of them would, would say that? Probably none of them. Maybe one if it was Tim. And so radical is doing something that's just or thinking in a way that most people wouldn't think. So when I talk about radical generosity, it's the masses are giving money when they're supposed to or time or whatever. They're being generous. And I'm, this is not a criticism. If everyone on your block is supporting a neighbor because they're ill, you should be generous and do that. In fact, I have a really good story about that. But the people who are being radically generous are the people who are going above and beyond and doing things that everyone else is not doing to be generous. And that's why I think radical generosity is so powerful because it gets people to think immediately and step out of their comfort zone. Like anyone I tell a story to about Tim, they're like, that's crazy. Why would the guy do that? No one's like, oh yeah, 
Sure, of course he gave you your car, his car. It just doesn't work like that. So radical generosity is powerful because it gets people to think. It, it, it catches attention immediately. And so if you're a person or an organization who expresses a radically generous mindset on a consistent basis, you're much more likely to be noticed. So it's a really powerful force. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask is like the difference between what drives someone to be generous and drives someone to not be generous. And I think you answered it there. It's a, it's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being. Mm-hmm. You know, then the question that gets to, because I can somewhat hear some listeners think about this as saying, well, like, what is the line? Like, someone could take that way too far and like they're always giving and they forget about themselves and there's got to be some balance like what have you is there and this may come off as like a a bad question and and i'll accept that but is there a line to where you're like too generous have you seen that like it actually ends up you know it's like kind of like a a a rising thing and it just like falls because you just hit a point where it becomes detrimental to either you your relationships your your family like have you seen any of that? Is there any examples of that? Or is it like, no, just go as far as you can go because you're never, you're never going to hit a bad spot? No. And actually, it's honestly a great question because I, I believe there is a line. But I don't think the line is where most people think it is. Mm. And so what I find is the roadblock for people being generous is getting earlier and earlier in someone's life or experience or, or situation these days. And I have a whole explanation on that too. But to answer your question directly, there's absolutely a line, but the line is not in the beginning where you're trying to decide if I want to be uncomfortable or not. Right. I mean, I think we can all agree that you need some discomfort in life to grow. You know, the perfect example is, you know, exercise. If you want to get bigger biceps, you got to make them burn a little bit. You need to feel the lactic acid. Well, it's the same thing in generosity. As you train your generous mind and your generous spirit, you're capable of more and more. The line for everyone is different, but it also moves. It's not a static thing. You can train yourself to think more generously. And so when you cross the line, that's when you're being overly generous and you're burning yourself out because you've done too much of it. And it's not typically related to time I've experienced as well. It's not, well, I was generous at 8 a.m. or I was generous at you know in October or I was generous when... I owed money to the IRS or I was generous when I had credit card debt. It's I was repeatedly generous over and over again and forgot to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. That's where the line is because, and you've heard it, there's plenty of content out there. If we don't take care of ourselves, then we can't show up our best for others. So there's absolutely a line, but it generally comes for most people after they're burnt out, if you will, not because they stepped out of their comfort zone and did something that they never tried before. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there is a, I, I think that everybody's point of, like, you think about it working out, you're talking about working out, like everybody's point of failure is always beyond what they can imagine it being in that point in time. And so it's the same thing with generosity. It's like always, that line is always further and you got to go and push against it to identify where it is and then you can retreat back on it it's like i love the concept of using generosity in the same frame as like working out or getting better at any skill or whatever it may be i i I do want to switch gears as we head to wrapping up before we do though you wrote this article around thinking Mm -hmm. and i think it's got something it's got some lines into generosity but it was this idea about Thinking is, is, is focused on the past. Intentional thinking is focused on the future and how this idea of intentional thinking really shapes 
entrepreneurs, people, etc. You reference Elon Musk in the article, and you know, you talk about this idea of constantly learning and etc. and always there. Tell me more. First off, what spurred you to write that? Because I think it's super interesting focus point and blog post. But then dive deeper into what you think the power of of intentional thinking is on that side. So I've always been the type of person that overanalyzes things and maybe not overanalyzes. I just like analyzing and trying to figure out how things work. So I, I didn't realize until maybe, you know, I was 30 years old that it can really hold you back in certain cases because you're trying to think so much about how something happened already rather than trying to figure out what should be, should be coming next. So I realized once I, left my previous firm and started my own company that a, I had a little bit more freedom. Those of you know that you work for a large organization. Sometimes you, you're a little bit limited from a compliance perspective to make sure, you know, to try to be able to do things like podcasts and write books. So I had this opportunity, Matt, to suddenly express all this creativity that I didn't know I had. I could, like I said, write a book. I could start doing podcasts. I could do other media outlets. I'm trained in media. I mean, I love talking and communicating. And I was just somewhat limited before. And so then I was all of a sudden able to do all this stuff. So you asked why I wrote the article. I wrote the article because I was able to be much more intentional about my use of time and thought process, as opposed to being told what to do. Now I suddenly said, I'm going to go learn new stuff, not study all the old stuff. So if you're more intentional about what's meaningful in your life, you're so much more likely to think about what's going to happen in the future. And I think the people, the most successful business owners, entrepreneurs, you know, whether you're Elon Musk or you have a small business in your hometown and you're known for a specific product or service, you have to think about what's next or else your business is not going to be successful. So if you're a financial planner, investment advisor out there and you own your own business, I mean, how critical is it to make sure that you're thinking about the future so that your firm doesn't fall behind? So if you're super intentional about what's meaningful in your life, I think you have to think about the future. Otherwise, you're going to lose track of success. You may not even know. You may lose your definition of success, which I think is a terrible thing for an entrepreneur. So intentional thinking is very important because it allows you to consider what can be, not just what has been already. Mm, Yeah, and it's a matter of, you mentioned something there as well. It's a matter of intentionally thinking about what can be and then bringing it back to what you can do today. You can't get all the way to where you need to be. It's the action that you can take today to get there. 100%. Bob, this is this has been uh, super interesting. And I, I think that your perspective on generosity and planning around generosity is refreshing. And it's kind of a mentality that I think the industry needs to start taking in the sense of the value that we can provide that goes beyond investment management. And it's actually a value that is controllable, which isn't around investment management, that provides that that feeling of, of good for your clients and that, that ties them in. So I think it's super interesting. Before I let you go, I always like to ask two wrap-up questions. I like to learn, you know, I have a sense of curiosity and I like to learn from people that are much smarter than me, like yourself. And the way I like to do it is through reading. So I'm curious, outside of your book, which everybody should go get on Amazon, what is one of those books that, you know, if we haven't read it or that we have read, we should reread that you think is just so powerful and impactful for people to go out and read? Well, you talk about intentional thinking. I read a book about halfway into my career. Well, halfway at the, at the time, it was halfway at my previous firm. And it's called The 12-Week Year. And it breaks, it takes a year-long process of goal setting and trying to figure out all the things you want to accomplish in your business. 
and breaks it down into basically four different years or the quarters of the year. And it made, oh man, it changed my business. I, I suddenly went from, you know, wallowing around to being much more intentional about planning and attacking my goals. And you made a key point about the action steps that you have to take in the present to reach the goals that you've intentionally thought about in the future. So 12 week year, it's not, it's a it's very simple read. There's a whole process and, a, and there's more than just a book, but it's something I talk about a lot because it changed my business. So I, that's, that's a book I would encourage anyone to read. It probably take you less than a week. You could actually, you could read it in probably two hours, not even. I love that. I love that. And I, I mean, I'm a slow reader, so I, th- I love the, the optimism you have around my reading speed on that side. So, um, all right, last question is, is, you know, we talked about a lot today. If someone's just tuning in just for the end of this podcast, what's one piece of actionable advice that you would, you hope listeners take away from our conversation here today? Ask better questions. My professor in grad school used to tell me this when we were, you know, I was studying broadcast journalism and it was old. We were always struggling to put stuff together, whether it was for the TV show that we did, or I wrote an article for the Miami Herald or radio, anything. His answer was always ask better questions. So when this, the, the way this applies to generosity is this, a lot of people will tell me, Bob, you know, how do I get involved in the community? How do I express my generosity more? I said, the only way you can be generous and giving to people who are in need is if you know what they need. So my encouragement to people, ask questions, ask your neighbor, your friend, your family, your favorite podcast host, what do they need? And you'd be surprised on how easy it'd be to give something. Man, that is such a good, such a good piece of advice that can be used in every aspect of your life. Bob, and it's been a super pleasure. Your story is super inspiring, dude. And, you know, I, I'm sure people are going to want to continue to follow your journey and continue to be inspired by what you're doing. So what's the best way for people to get in touch and continue to follow all the great things that you're doing? Absolutely. Uh, BobDeepaSquale.com. You can find links to my socials, which are just at BDEPA, B-D-E-P-A. And I love to talk. DMs are always open. Have a generous day and we'd love to talk about it. Bob DePasquale, man, super inspiring. Go follow him. Thanks for everything you're doing for the people you serve and for the industry as a whole. Stay well and thanks for joining us here on Bridging the Gap, man. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 